Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The other big story that's been developing all week was the investigation to the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven other people. The investigation has been focusing a lot on the fog and weather, but it's also going to look into the helicopter itself and the pilot who received clearance to fly in poor weather conditions. There has also been conversation about a terrain awareness warning system that possibly could have prevented the wreck. But in this case, that warning system was not present on the helicopter that Kobe was flying on. The NTSB has been arguing for a decade and a half that systems that prevent crashes should be mandatory in helicopters that accommodate six or more passengers, such as the Sikorsky S-76 helicopter that he was flying in. But these efforts have been turned aside from the FAA. The NTSB will be releasing a preliminary report on the accident soon. But for more on what we know so far, we spoke to Chris Ancarlo. He's a news correspondent for iHeartMedia in Los Angeles to tell us a little bit more about what we know about the investigation so far. The NTSB right now is drawing out all of the physical, what they call perishable evidence. So anything that maybe could uh, deteriorate out in the open or that needs to be collected in order to piece together the puzzle a little bit later, they're going to be looking at many different aspects of this crash. So that means they'll get into the books of the company. They'll get into the background of the pilot. They'll get into what the air traffic looked like uh, around Southern California during that time. And of course, they'll get into the weather. What were the conditions like? They'll look at the engines of the aircraft to to see if there was any malfunction or error there. And then they'll also look into the uh, mechanics of the aircraft and to see that everything was in good working order. So all of that ball together is going to be the broader NTSB investigation. What we heard today was a more ironed out timeline of this flight as it took off from John Wayne Airport down in Santa Ana, which is about 70 air miles from Camarillo, and uh, and started its flight, worked its way up to Burbank. And it was at Burbank that the pilot requested to go from visual flight rules to special VFR, special visual flight rules. Uh, he put in that request, and the reason is he wanted to transit some airspace there uh, along those special rules, which basically says that he can fly when the feeling, uh, the ceiling is below 1,000 feet, which is kind of a basic minimum, and also with less than three miles of visibility. So they ended up circling right around the, uh, the airport there in Burbank for about 12 minutes until that request was approved. And it was at that point that they started to work their way back down the 118 freeway. And using the freeways, they followed the 118 to the 101 and then worked their way down towards Camarillo. As they uh, passed through Burbank and Van Nuys airspace, uh, they then requested to fly straight through to Camarillo, which was where they were going to land. The, uh, the pilot requested what's called flight following. And basically that just means there's a constant contact, if you will, between air traffic control and the pilot. Uh, the air traffic control said that the pilot was flying too low for flight following. That's not necessarily a warning as much as it is just a statement of, you know, we can't help you out based on where you are. We can't get a whatever it is that they need in order to maintain that following. So the pilot then requested to rise and to avoid a cloud layer and asked the air traffic control for clearance. That was the last contact between the pilot and, and air traffic control. So radar indicated that the aircraft rose to about 2,300 feet 
And then there was a left descending turn, and then that was the last radar contact. What we know on the ground is that when it hit, it was at just about 1,085 feet above sea level, and the uh, debris field is about five to 600 feet. They've got a pretty pretty uh, condensed scattering. You know, if you if you think about air, aircraft accidents and crashes, often those debris fields will last for you know, maybe a half mile or a mile or even further. So that gives you an idea of just how hard the aircraft was able to um, to hit the surface there. Yeah, and it's it does really seem like the weather uh, probably p- played the most important factor. Obviously, we don't know yet if there was any type of mechanical failure or whatnot, but just uh, all those requests for, uh, and, and he was granted, the pilot was granted to fly in these poor weather conditions. It just really seems that all of that is adding up to what was the culprit. And, and as you said, in the end, when he climbed up and then dropped back down so rapidly, uh, that was where everybody uh, unfortunately perished and, and um, you know, investigators and, and coroners were out there trying to gather uh, remains and even the terrain there is a little difficult. They all had to uh, uh, to hike in and, and be flown in as well. Yeah, so the NTSB is actually asking for pictures from people who are around Calabasas and had taken pictures of the weather conditions or had taken pictures somewhere near the crash site so they can get an idea of what the weather conditions were like. They were also pretty quickly, after making that request, to they were pretty quick to say, listen, it's not that we're just focusing on the weather here. There are all of these other factors that we have to look into, but this is just one important piece of the puzzle. Certainly there are, and there is a lot of reporting out there about how difficult it is to fly in conditions like this, how thick that cloud layer was, uh, specifically above Camarillo, or excuse me, above uh, Calabasas, and how easy perhaps it could have been for the pilot to become disoriented while you know either asking for that uh, for that increase in altitude or while uh, while moving across. What has been estimated is that the aircraft hit the hillside at a pretty high rate of speed, around 160 miles an hour. So. Um, yeah, that, that that tells you that the pilot was at least moving with a certain degree of purpose. Yeah, and, and every time there's a crash, a plane crash or something like that, people always ask, is there a black box? And that's not the case with this one, right? There's nothing, there was no black box on this helicopter. No, they're not required to be a, a black box on an aircraft like this. And you know, it's important to talk about the aircraft as well as Sikorsky that uh, is a twin engine aircraft. So, you know, that that's important when you're trying to narrow down the possibilities of what could happen. Because, you know, when you have two engines, that means if one fails, you at least have enough power to, to work your way back down to the ground uh, in an emergency landing. In, in this case, we didn't hear any sort of emergency call. There was no mayday that we know of. Uh, and so that tells you that whatever happened happened quickly and was catastrophic enough that the pilot couldn't even get anything out on the radio, which, you know, in most cases is instantaneous. It's always important to remember the victims and all of this. Obviously, everybody knows Kobe Bryant and, and you know, the world, the sports world. A lot of people really feel for that. But, you know, it also included in the victims where his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, who goes by Gigi, uh, some of her um, uh, friends that uh, play basketball with her, their parents, some coaches, I mean, they were on their way to um, one of Kobe's uh, um, sports uh, tournaments, uh, one of of their basketball tournaments where his daughter was going to play. 
And, you know, these were all just people united by the sport of basketball. Obviously, a lot has been made about his daughter and her aspirations with basketball. And they've been seen together at Laker games. But these are the victims, really a very close-knit group of of people who who played basketball together. And he coached the team, things like that. Yeah, you know, it's important to think about this in in the context of what they were doing and where they were going. So the the Mamba Cup was this big basketball tournament, and it's up at the uh, Mamba Sports Academy, which was something started and created by Kobe Bryant, not just for youth sports, but also, you know, I mean, you hear great stories about NBA players who trained up there with Kobe or with other players. And it's just a really nice facility for not only basketball, but also other sports like volleyball up there. Um, And so, you know, you've got these people that are gearing to go, go back up there again. They're down in Newport beach, uh, 70 air miles from, uh, from thousand Oaks. And if anybody knows anything about Southern California, 70 air miles is about five hours of driving when you really consider traffic even on a Sunday. So that gives you an idea of why perhaps they were flying up there. And they were flying up there with a number of people who were from the neighborhood. Um, And, you know, I guess not really hidden within this tragedy, but certainly uh, a piece of this tragedy tragedy is you have a couple of families that are just, I mean, they're incredibly impacted. The Altabelli family had three family members, the, the father, the wife, and one of their daughters on this flight. So you've got I think they had two other kids who now are having to deal with basically losing more than half of their family. Chris and Carlo, news correspondent for iHeartMedia based in Los Angeles. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, of course. An interesting science story that developed this week. We finally know why stress turns your hair white. After experimenting with rats, scientists found that within the hair follicle, there's a reservoir of pigment regenerating stem cells that get depleted when you're stressed out. And unfortunately, when that dries out, your hair turns gray. For more on this story, we spoke to Eleanor Cummins. She's a contributor to Popular Science. For so long, people have sort of been experiencing this in their daily lives. And they're like, okay, my my hair is going gray from my college exams or from work pressure or raising kids. But scientists were actually not convinced that that was really possible. So in this new study um, that came out last week in the journal Nature, a bunch of researchers in the United States and Brazil teamed up and they actually decided to create an experimental model and to see if they could turn rats gray just by stressing them out and then evaluate the pathway by which that actually happens. And so they were able to show that this is 100% possible and they identified the way that it can occur at a cellular level. The unfortunate part is that the animals once again need to suffer for something like this. So they put them through three different types of stressors, restraint stress, chronic, unpredictable stress. I don't know what that means. Uh, Sounds terrible. Yeah, And then stress that it's induced that's caused by physical pain. And the way they did the physical pain part of this also sounds very terrible. Tell us about that. So what they did is they took an analog of capsaicin, which everybody knows as being the thing that makes chili peppers really spicy, and they injected that directly into the rats. Oh. And so that caused this thing called nociception-induced stress, which is the stress that comes from physical pain or the threat of physical pain. And so all of these strategies, all three of them, successfully turned the rats white. It definitely changed some of those follicles. But this last one with the sort of spicy pepper kind of sensation worked really, really well. So in the next phase of their research, as the researchers tried to understand the physiological pathway that was changing the rat's color, they focused in on that particular stressor. They stressed all of the rest of their rats out that way. And then they sort of watched what happened, you know, on this really, really granular level. 
And so what did they learn from this? To my understanding, it has to do with the growth cycle of the hair. There's some stem cells within the hair that provide the color with these induced stress. Uh, you know, those uh, stem cells or whatever that is start depleting. And once, yeah. uh, one that's, once that's gone, the hair turns gray and it never comes back. The crazy thing is that this is totally permanent. So what happens is, is that in our hair follicles, we have two different types of cells. We have differentiated melanocytes. And those are the things that actually give our skin and our hair pigment. So those are the real sort of like color agents. But those melanocytes develop out of melanocyte stem cells. And so the stem cells are sort of like the raw material, right? That like keep pumping out these cells so that we can keep having color in our hair. What they showed is that stress is able to kind of flood the system with neurotransmitters that cause the little stem cells to rapidly develop and then completely deplete from the stressed follicle. So you have no stem cells left to be creating melanocytes to be creating color. So in the absence of those, your hair becomes translucent. It's not full of any pigment anymore. And once those stem cells are depleted, as far as we can tell, they do not return. So that follicle will continue to produce a white hair forever. And in the rats in this study, I mean, it was just a few days of this stress that really depleted all of the pigment there. It didn't take very long. And, you know, it, we always kind of think of pictures of presidents when they go in, when their term starts, and then when they leave and how gray their hair looks. And so obviously very stressful job being president of the United States. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't take very long for all of this to the reservoirs to exhaust themselves. So in this case, the rats, they were able to keep their differentiated melanocytes pumping for a little while. But after five days, because their stem cells were depleted, the hair started to change color. So, you know, like in a work week, right? <laughs> these yeah. rats developed these gray hairs. So it was a really rapid process. And I think that's something that researchers still want to know more about is like, how fast can this happen? Because it might, that might not even be the minimum. This could be something that some people have argued can happen overnight. It's so interesting. I mean, you've kind of always thought, yeah, stress does make you start graying, but now they're proving it. And, uh, you know, learning more about it can lead to maybe some therapies, maybe to help slow the process. Who knows? It's not the only way that hair goes gray. So right. there's still a lot more to learn about it. So we have lots of questions that still remain. Stress is definitely, we've established a factor, but it also seems like genetics play a role as well as your environment, which can influence your genes and cause different mutations. There's also a lot of evidence that certain cancer drugs can cause your hair to turn white. So there's a chemical factor. There's a lot more that we still need to understand about why this really common phenomenon happens. Eleanor Cummins, science journalist and contributor to Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Finally for this week, the business of baby making is booming. Right now, about one in eight couples suffers from infertility and investors are taking note, pouring tons of cash into the industry. The U.S. fertility market is expected to grow to $15.4 billion by 2023. And there's more to it than just IVF. Startup businesses are also tackling at-home testing, wearables, and egg freezing. For more on this, we spoke to Beth Coet. She's the senior editor at Fortune. So last year, I started to notice I was getting just a flood of pitches about different companies in the fertility space. And one thing that really struck me is that this had been a sector that had been ignored for a really long time. Women's health in general, we've seen, has not gotten a ton of attention. And all of a sudden, there seemed to be this interest 
and money flooding into the space. And I think a big part of it is what you said, you know, one in eight couples struggle with infertility. I think people are starting to realize that and seeing that there's a lot of potential here. We talk about infertility. The first thing people think of are people that for some biological reason can't have babies. But the market for this really is beyond that. There's LGBTQ couples that would like to have children. There's people that are single that want to have children also. I think that one was called social infertility. So it's not just people that are biologically can't have kids. Absolutely. And I think that's something really interesting that's happening. We're seeing a large part of the sector really try to change the definition here. And I think that's a good thing. Treatment should not just be for couples who have a typical infertility diagnosis. You know, I think the sector has the potential to really change how families are formed more broadly. And I think that's what makes it so exciting. And also, I think people are also worried as well. There's risk that comes with that, too. So there's definitely both sides of it we're, we're seeing happening here. Researchers have said that the U.S. fertility market could be at $15.4 billion by 2023. In 2017, that was about $7 billion, so it's doubling pretty much. And uh, I think right now, maybe about 1% of children born in the world are done by IVF, maybe 2% in the United States. So the numbers are still small, but this just, as I mentioned, with the market growing for this type of stuff, we can be seeing more and more births coming out of this. I think that one of the things the market is really trying to solve for is access. So fertility treatment is still very expensive and out of reach for a large segment of the population. This has historically been something that was paid for out of pocket. So again, really sort of segmented for a particular type of consumer um, had existed outside traditional insurance. And I think what we're seeing is that infertility was only sort of designated a disease not that long ago. And I think that has helped sort of bring it into the mainstream, mainstream treatment, mainstream insurance process. Still a long way to go there. But I think that that has the potential to help bring down costs for a lot of people. Let's talk about some of the businesses that have sprung up out of this industry. As I said, there's a, a slew of different ones and a lot of startups trying to handle this. But one that's interesting is egg freezing because this has a lot of its own issues with it. You know, a lot of people are freezing their eggs, but then the businesses that are providing the storage and things like that find that they quickly can't keep up with the cost because there's not enough turnaround or there's not enough of a base clientele for this. The egg freezing really started as a way for women who are undergoing cancer treatment to preserve their fertility. Now we've seen it expand beyond that to the broader population. And part of the problem is we just don't have that much data yet on the success rates. A lot of women have not gone back to use their eggs. So we just don't have a really clear sense of what works, what doesn't. But I think a lot of women are finding that it's very freeing in some sense. I heard a lot of that as I was reporting. It made them feel really empowered to feel like they had this option out there. One of the other interesting businesses is wearables. There's a company called Ava that's uh, known as the Fitbit of fertility. Tell us about that one. So I think here we're also seeing sort of different sectors of tech try to address some of the issues in the space. So helping women discover their peak fertility. So when are they ovulating? What's the best time for conception? And I think here it's been fascinating because we've had wearables in the space in healthcare for a really long time, but not really addressing women's health specifically. So I think one of the big themes I found is that the marketplace is just really ripe for this because women's health and fertility in general has been ignored. Beth Coet, senior editor at Fortune. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.